the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by no one. I'm alone. But I do nonetheless have a great show for you today. I'm speaking with director Bing Liu, whose recent film Minding the Gap, in addition to winning a slew of awards on the festival circuit, focuses on trauma and friendship as it unfolds across a small group of skateboarding friends in Rockford, Illinois. In our conversation, Bing and I talk about, well, for one, my radio voice transformation, but also what it's like to be from a town in the Midwest and what it's like to capture stories from the Midwest. We also end up talking a lot about what trauma means and how we deal with trauma, how trauma manifests in our lives and how trauma sometimes prevents us from confronting our own realities and ourselves. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation and without further ado, I'll get right to it. Today we're speaking with Bing Liu, director of Minding the Gap. Bing is a Chicago-based filmmaker who is really on fire this year, not only with his multi-award-winning Minding the Gap, which I should note won in addition to many other prizes, the prestigious Special Jury Award for Breakthrough Filmmaking at this year's Sundance Film Festival, but also in his turn as segment director for America to Me, a 10-hour documentary series that examines racial inequality in the American education system. Minding the Gap, which the director is here to discuss today, focuses on Bing and several of his childhood friends, all of whom share a passion for skateboarding and all of whom also struggle in their relationships with one another, their fathers, and the women in their lives. Over the course of the film, Bing's camera grapples with the ongoing legacy of abuse and trauma, illuminating the challenges and resolve of teens growing up in the Midwest. Welcome to the show, Bing. Glad to be here. By the way, like we were just talking like off the recording mm-hmm. and you like transformed once you became <laughs> like there's like this formality that really I'd only ever seen it in like really great actors actually. Who oh. are, like, as soon as they call action. One of my first movies I worked on it had Dennis Quaid and Zach Efron in it. It was like Zach Efron after he was like breaking out of his Disney. But you know, pre muscle hunk. Pre muscle yeah. hunk. Okay. Post, you know, singing in high school. Troy <laughs> from High School Musical. I know uh, all three films. Oh, okay, yeah. I didn't want to assume. <laughs> That's uh, okay. <laughs> but no, he was like, you know, he just couldn't be anybody but himself. He was just like this sort of, you know, 20 something person figuring out himself. But like Dennis Quaid, on the other hand, as soon as you call the action, he just transformed. That was the moment where I realized this is why actors, this is why it's a craft. <laughs> I am heartened by that. Thank you for that. Though I don't know if I want to be Dennis Quaid. I think I'd rather be Zac Efron, (laughs) but that's been the challenge of my life. But actually, it's funny that you should say this because my dad just, he always rags on me for exactly this. I answered the phone yesterday when he was calling me as he always does from the road, which is a dangerous call because he has lots of time and I don't. So anyways, (laughs) he calls me and then I picked up the phone and I guess said hello in that kind of way. And he said, Oh, yes. Well, this is your dad. I guess this is Eric, and we're here to interview your dad. (laughs) So it's definitely a transformation that I have heard from other people as well. But anyways, to talk not about me, but about you. I do feel your back now. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, let's start talking a little bit about how you got started with the project that became Minding the Gap. Yeah, well, I was in my mid-20s. I'd been working in film for a few years as a crew member. You know, I grew up making skate videos, but I also made my little short films on the side. But never, like when I was making those films, it wasn't like, I'm going to be a director. It was like, you know, growing up in Rockford where the film takes place, it's this working class Rust Belt community. Mm -hmm. The film industry just seemed like such a distant constellation. I never realized it was. But nonetheless, I got a job as a production assistant when I was 19, then became a grip and a camera assistant. 
That's um, when you would move to Chicago. That's when right? I moved, you to, moved Chicago. to Chicago. You moved to Chicago at 17? 19. 19. At 19. 19. Okay. Yeah. I studied literature, got a bachelor's in literature. While I was doing that, I was freelancing. And then I joined the camera union, kept going. But all along that time, I was making these films. And a lot of them dealt with themes that ultimately come to a head in Minding the Gap. There's a doc that I did in my early 20s about these two Vietnamese immigrants who had both moved to Chicago in 93 under very mm. different circumstances. And we dealt with them finding their identity along the way as these Vietnamese immigrants who were part of the diaspora. And also we went to their family trauma. And, you know, when I was doing Mind in the Gap, it was like, well, I'm starting to see now that I'm older, mm. these connections in skateboarders that really reflect my own experience growing up. So what if we try to tackle that? And so I went around the country and just interviewed skateboarders from all over. And sure enough, there were a lot of patterns. There's a lot of similar experiences that I experienced. And a year into doing that, that's when I went back to Rockford. I noticed this kid, Kier, who becomes one of the main characters in the film. And it's like, oh, he's this one African-American skateboarder in this group of white friends. Sure. What's yeah. his perspective? We ended up interviewing and he, <laughs> it was like everything that I'd experienced growing up, he was just now beginning to process. Mm. Both in mm. terms of his racial identity, but also in terms of his complex relationship with his father who had recently passed away. And so it was like, oh God, I got to keep following this kid. And then, you know, his older friend, Zach, he was about to become a young father. And it was like, you know, this guy just did not seem ready for that. Um, right, so it's yeah. like, well, there's going to be a story here. And so that was sort of the beginnings. So I want to pick up a little bit later. I want to talk about how race cashes out in this documentary and also obviously about how trauma and violence cash out. But before we get there, I, I want to talk a little bit about what skateboarding means as a community. Like, who circulates there? What did that space mean for you as, like, a kid who was also dealing with lots of struggles at home? Of course, this is all in hindsight. I think at the time, and I think this is true for most skateboarders, mm -hmm. they don't really realize why they're doing it. Okay. Not in this, like, analytical way, at least. Sure. I mean, it's a it's feeling. conscious. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know that you love it. You know, and it's like, that's enough, you know, and you feel this camaraderie between other people. But in hindsight, I think if I were to qualify it, I'd say it's about, a lot of it is about control, you know? Mm. A lot of times people who grew up in traumatic households, there's not a lot of sense of control. For me, in the household I grew up in, I could do the right thing or the wrong thing, but, you know, the wrong thing might still happen to me. There's right, no sense right. of causality. It didn't make right. sense. But, you know, if I went to the skate park and I was skateboarding and I fell... It makes sense in a weird way because it's like the pain that I'm experiencing is caused by the laws of physics or me not doing it right. And over time, you feel like you get a sense of control over pain even. Mm, and by extension, you feel like you get a sense of control just in general and you start to realize your volition. And I think sometimes that can extend to other aspects of life. Sometimes it doesn't. And maybe this is all like heady stuff that maybe not a lot of skateboarders think about. But in screening the film, a lot of skateboarders have realized and said for the first time like oh no you know and these are skateboarders in their late 20s early right. 30s like oh this is why this is why I skateboard or like you've articulated it because it's really hard to articulate i think it's a paradoxical thing i think the more you try to tackle it directly the more cheesy and sure, not, sure, sure. yeah so it also seems like as i was watching the footage because there is a lot of footage you said i think in another interview that i saw that you were influenced by spike jones early on in terms of what he was trying to do with skate videos. And you can definitely see that influence in a lot of the stuff that you're shooting, the angles, the, 
I don't know the technical term for this, but that like whipping around, like as somebody like swings around in the frame, like you actually follow them in a way that doesn't lose them in the center. And I kept thinking about how it's like skateboarding. So I had a lot of friends that skate. I was very lame though. I like to keep hearing shirt. I wonder, I don't know if that was on purpose, but I'm like, he probably, yeah. I had friends that skateboarded. I was a, a rollerblader, oh, which is the lamest wow, of that, that like ecosystem. Shame. Yeah, that just exactly. Your voice. And the thing that I always admired about my friends who were skateboarders is that they were. There's a kind of fearlessness that that sport requires, right? Because especially when you're doing like any kind of jumps or like, I mean, even. For me, as a not terribly coordinated individual, staying on a mobile thing that is on wheels underneath you was its own kind of risk-taking. But I wonder if there's something to that, that there's a kind of, you're taking risks and kind of seeing the limits of what you can do, but in a supportive community. Or not at all. Also, possibly not (laughs) at all. (laughs) Well. It's interesting that you say you felt the word was like nerd or loser or something, but like I feel like in reality, that's how skateboarders feel like on the Mm. inside internally, and that's what draws them to this thing. I think the essence of feeling like a loser or a nerd or like an outcast is just having trouble like connecting with other people. And I think skateboarding and rollerblading too, you know, allows you to like be around other people and not really truly have to connect, but you have this shared thing that you do together. You're doing it on your own, but you're doing it around other people. Yeah, and there's like a corollary to like someone in Boston going to the bar and having a beer and watching the game and you're like talking side-eye to the man next to you about like, Mm. you know, like whatever the quarterback throw. It's like you're connecting with someone, but like not in a way that truly connects. I forget your question, but but what I'm saying is over time, in adolescence as you get older, that stuff either hardens or you grow out of it. Like with skateboarding, it's gotten cooler over the last 10, 20 years. Sure. You know, I think some skateboarders have really grown up with that coolness and accepted it as their own. And they like hide behind the shield of coolness. But I think me and my subsect of skateboarding, because skateboarding has a smattering of all types of people in it. It's not this monolithic thing. And regionally is different. And regionally too, Yeah. yeah. My little subculture of skateboarding, I think, really never grew into like, this is cool and I'm going to like smoke cigarettes and just buy into this image. Mm-hmm. It was like, we still felt like the losers. We still felt, and we like almost owned that and had this weird pride in being the loser. Mm-hmm. And the film Beautiful Losers like, really captures that, you know, with Harmony Korine and all those skateboarders of that sort of sect. But I mean, again, I forget your question, but... <laughs> what I mean more is this like, it gave you a space in which you could kind of do risk-taking or like, as you were saying also, a certain kind of mastery where you could train at a kind of mastery in a way that you didn't have the opportunity necessarily at home. What you were saying, the cause and effect thing, where it's like, I know that if I practice this kick push or if I practice this slide or whatever, I'll eventually do it. And there's a relationship between the effort that I put into it and the reward that I get. Whereas those kind of causal relations were not present in an otherwise kind of chaotic childhood. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think as you get older, there's this realization that that doesn't translate to society in Mm. terms of like skateboarding is a value in the same way that like a jazz saxophone is in terms of the hours you put in, which is, yeah, so interesting. But I think the deeper nugget of wisdom to be garnered from that is that kids really want to, and they have such capacity to try and be passionate about something. Mm. And through that, they learn and grow. And I think I'm seeing a little shift of things like education where we're like valuing different types of learning. 
you know, mm, things like that. Okay. I think we're starting to sort of expand on that idea. And it's less about what you're learning, but like more about how you learn. And I think that's very important for development of young people. I want to talk a little bit about Zach and Kier. So let's start with Zach. Zach is a very charismatic guy, but like, I'm wondering what kind of person do you think he is? And I'm wondering if in the process of making the film and shooting the film and then obviously editing it, did your sense of him change? I mean, it's hard to describe what kind of person he is. I mean, on the surface, I thought he was like this really charismatic, lovable, natural leader. That's how mm, I sort sure. of first thought of him. You know, like Kier, we opened up right away about just emotionally how difficult growing up can be. Zach wasn't able to articulate emotionally that journey of growing up and what he was going through even presently as mm. well as Kier. Zach's very articulate, but it's that I think Zach just doesn't operate. He's not in touch with his emotional self as much as Kier is, as much as like, I feel like I am. And I think for a while, you know, I kept trying to like access that though. I think at a certain point, it wasn't that I gave up on trying to access that. It was like I had written off his personality as just somebody who just didn't have as much of an emotional side. But then later, you know, as the film carries on and just, you know, his life gets really tumultuous and it gets to this breaking point, that's where he sort of just opened up to me. To me, it seemed like out of nowhere. And he mm. just poured his soul out into the space that we were filming in. And then it was like, oh no, he has that softness there in the same way that Kier does, who's much younger. But over time, that softness has been hardened so much that it just took a lot longer to get there. That definitely makes sense. And listeners will see this when they see the film, is that there is definitely a kind of withholding, a performative withholding, actually, that there's Zach, I would guess, you obviously know him far better, but from the film, he has this kind of jocularity that is also kind of a front, right? Mm -hmm. That it's like he's there for a good time. He's very quick with the joke. He's obviously like very sharp in his own way. But then that always does seem to be, there's always something he seems to want to withhold. But let's talk about Kier, because he's a fascinating character, both as somebody who can kind of mesh easily with the group, but then other times might feel like slightly apart. As you say, he's also in many ways, the most forthcoming character that you have in, I mean, he's not a character, he's an actual person in the documentary. Was there a sense that you had from him early on and how did that change kind of over the course of producing the film? He remained pretty emotionally forthright through and through throughout the making of the film. You know, I think at times he would like, all right, this is too much. I mean, he wouldn't say so as much. It was just like, I could sense that like, we're not going to talk about childhood and his father today. Like today's right. like him going to wash dishes and we'll hang out and film and playing video games or something. Yeah. I mean, he's part of what makes him remind me of my younger self is that he has become a master of code switching without realizing it. Mm. And I think a lot of that has to do with being black in this white friend group. But part of it is that he's emotional and his friends don't have that same emotional immediacy and yet he needs to find a way to express it. He's not the type of person who's going to repress it. And this is cut out of the film, but he's this musician and he played his first show like during the making of the film and he expresses emotions a lot that way. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Bing Liu, director of Minding the Gap. We return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. Hey, 
are lucky enough to have Michael Arsenault in the studio with us. Michael is the author of I Can't Date Jesus, um, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I've Put My Faith in Beyonce. And Michael's here to give us a book recommendation. Michael, what book are you going to recommend? I would recommend Darnell Moore's um, No Ashes in the Fire. It's a really special moment that there are two black gay men who have released memoirs from like major houses. I think with Darnell's book, it's very powerful. We talk about a lot of the same things, but from completely different perspectives. He also uses the story of like him the way he's from to inform the story. It's just a really smart book. It's really powerful. It could be haunting in certain moments, but like he's such a gifted writer. It's it's beautiful prose, and I encourage everyone to read it because I am a fan and a friend, and I am very proud of him, and to be sharing this moment with him has been really great. So it's a memoir? Yes, it's okay. a memoir. And can you tell us a little bit about his, his life writing, and his growing up? Well, he's writing about his development as a gay black man, uh, coming to terms with that. He's a Black Lives Matter activist. He's just a really smart person. He talks about kind of like his rocky relationship with his father, um, issues kind of related to poverty and these access to schools. It's like health, like it's, it's a lot happening, but literally the book begins with like someone tried to set him on fire. So oh that, that's, yeah, I write, like you go in and like, oh, wow. But it's a great book. You can book. say, oh shit. Oh, oh it, no, I was <laughs> like, oh shit, someone tried to set you on fire. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, But it's really powerful. I just think he wrote a really powerful book. I know it'll resonate with a lot of people. And I like that we have such different perspectives, but we share an identity and that neither one of us has been burdened with being the only one. So it's great to have two different perspectives like from two walks of life. And I'm really proud of him. And again, to be sharing them up with him. That sounds great. Will you tell us the name of the book again and the author? No Ashes in the Fire by Darnell Moore. Thank you so much. That was Michael Arsenault, author of I Can't Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I've Put My Faith in Beyonce. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you again. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Bing Liu, director of Minding the Gap. I'm wondering, to pick up some of the threads here, is like, how does race cash out in this group that you're talking about? I mean, on the one hand, most of the discussions about race uh, in the ways that the film touches on them get channeled through Kier's experience. And it seems to me like there's a, I'm forgetting the exact scene, but there's like a, there's a number of moments where, like on the one hand, somebody like Zach is quick to jump in and like pound some other guy who said some like racist nonsense to his friend, right? Like there's that. But then there's also another scene in which I'm trying to remember exactly how it happened. It's like Kier is standing in the foreground and there's two people that are watching something on a cell phone and the N-word is used like multiple times. And you managed to capture in this frame like both those two like white kids like kind of laughing at it on the cell phone right next to this guy who is their friend, right? And then him just kind of almost seeming to like go numb or blank. So like I'm I'm wondering both like how that operates in like skate culture as you experienced it, but also kind of what it's like in a town. Ta- it's not a small town. Rockford isn't a small town, but like in the Midwest, right? And how And how your own experiences of like racial difference might have mapped out there. Um, 
Oh, there's a lot of questions in yes. that within that, but you know, there's a difference between friendship and racial identity, right? Mm. I mean, there's different scripts. We have different social constructs around those two ideas. Sure. Um, and I think that's what caused a lot of really interesting moments to play out and where we see like how they either mesh or don't mesh mm. within the film. I think one of my favorite scenes in the film, because it, it's just so gets at like, I think where we're at today, you know, there's this room full of teenagers drinking beer Kier's in the room and everybody in the room is white except Kier and his friend who's sitting next to him. And they're arguing about whether white working class people have or do not have more privilege than black oh, people. Right. Yeah, you remember Just automatically. Scene. Yeah. And it's actually two white people arguing, you know, these counter points. And Kier is mostly just watching. Mm. Um, I think that sort of says so much about just, you know, where we're at today in terms of how we talk about race, you know like the different sort of demographics that are sort of vying for their experience to be recognized. Sure. Um, I think Rockford is a microcosm for that. I mean, it's a Rust Belt city. It's it's quote unquote flyover. Um, and, but it's not small. It's not rural. You know, it's like a city of 160, 170,000 people. Um, and it's just so both segregated, but integrated at the same time. It's segregated in terms of where people live, but it's not a big enough city where... People aren't like going to school next to each other. People aren't like seeing each other at the mall, having friends across all these different sort of lines of, and barriers of demographics. And so in a way, it's like less of a bubble than I think. Sometimes I go to LA and I'm like, man, everyone's just driving a Prius and talking about like policies that are, you know, progressive. And I'm like, I ascribe to that, but it's like, sure. It's just not, it's, there's a bubble aspect to it that I don't think exists in Rockford. Yeah. yeah. Let's actually, can we talk about Rockford? Like what kind of a place it is? Because I'm also fascinated. I was thinking, I grew up in um, Lexington, Kentucky. So it's like a kind of similar, I mean, I don't know That's what across the- across from popular, Cincinnati, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's this kind of like, like you were saying, it's not a small, it's not a rural town, but it is also not kind of like LA, Chicago, San Francisco, New York, right? It's not those places. So what, because this is also, I think the Midwest is kind of an interesting place for you that you like to explore in film, like the type of stories that we get there. So can you talk a little bit about like what Rockford is like and like what type of stories we get out of places like that? I think it, it, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's so close. It's literally close to home. It's too close to home for me to even know. I mean, just... There, there hasn't been a lot of groundwork set there. There's no, there's not, you know, like we all can recognize the Brooklyn Bridge. We can all recognize the downtown skyline of LA, you know, Chicago, all trains. And it's just, you know, so much is said in just even seeing those visuals. But the Midwest is, um, I think that's the heart of America. I think that's, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question really. Or maybe I don't understand the question. Um, well, it's like, I mean, what what do you find when we tend to focus only on large cities, mm-hmm. right? There are stories that we miss. And I think that one of the things, I guess a way of answering this for myself, my own experience is that it's like when I go home, it's a world unlike any of the places that I've otherwise lived, you know, like in New York or in Chicago, I lived in, well, I can't really say I lived in Chicago because I went for a year to the University of Chicago. So I only stayed in Hyde Park and with some time off for good behavior and like in the, in you know. In, <laughs> they let in, you out. Yeah, or, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. 
But, you know, it, it's it's a world apart from those, like, major urban centers, and yet it has its own dense history. It has its own dense social networks, its own landmarks, right? Like, so when you were saying, like, the Brooklyn Bridge, like, there are things like that in these kind of towns, right, that are, like, iconic, that have these, like, resonance in other people's lives. I guess I'm I'm interested more in why do you think it's important to tell those kind of stories, right? Like, what, why, for example, what would have been different if you had just followed around some, like, skaters from, like, Brooklyn, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, like, people trying to think of a way to really describe these Midwestern places. I think, I mean, like, cities are growing. I think generally people move out of places like Rockford mm-hmm. if, they, if they have the resources. Um, but the people who stick it out, so to speak, you know, like their experiences and their lives and their values, like they don't, there's, there's a gritty, there's a gritty pride in living in places mm. like Rockford. And I think the experience of it is uh, too easy to misrepresent um, because it's on the surface of it, it is like a lot of abandoned factories and, you know, sagging uh, porches and stuff. Sure. Um, but life there is, you know, in many ways, like more common to our life in the cities in terms of this emotional mm-hmm. inner life um, than we often think of it. But yet there's just a different sort of intersectionality there that is a different way to tell a story. I mean, in, in reality, I don't actually see that. I mean, like, because the types of stories I want to yeah. tell are human stories that are, you know, deal with emotion and coming of age and trauma. So I don't know. It's hard for me to really like say one way or the other, like why these Midwestern stories matter so much beyond the fact that there's just not enough stories being told there. There's yeah. not enough like yeah. stories that honor the actual experience of growing up or living there that are told. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's also talk about there's a there's a turn in the film. Well, I guess we could see there would be two different kind of turns. One is acknowledging and attempting to process, I think, in and to the extent that you're the figures in your film can, right? Abuse. You and your half-brother were both abused by your stepfather. Zach also seems to indicate that his father was abusive towards him, and certainly Kier also talks about that. Then there is a kind of shift to talk about. So if on the one hand we're talking about abuse, fathers abusing sons, then we also get a kind of narrative about men abusing women. Right. And there's in the case of Zach, it appears that we see the repetition of a kind of cycle of abuse. Right. Like he was abused and then he has kind of an what appears to be an abusive relationship with his girlfriend whose name I cannot remember. Nina, Nina um, in an abusive relationship with Nina, who is also the mother of his child. How did you on the one hand, I can only imagine how difficult it was to have some of those conversations with people that you are personally related to. So can you talk about that experience, like kind of what you were trying to map in telling these kind of stories or what sort of things, mapping is me trying to create a framework (laughs) around it, but like what types of things were you trying to get at? I was trying to get at the complexity of these things. I think so often we see films about violence in the home that tonally are just really somber and like tense but if you actually have lived through it or experience it I mean it's like all the aspects of life 
are true mm. to your experience as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, you know, one thing I was trying to get at. The other thing I was trying to get at was, you know, a bigger question than, you know, did he hit her, you know? Right. Um, it was it was more about, like, what does the whole ecosystem of this cycle of violence look like? You know, yeah. like, why do fathers do it? How does it affect children? How does it affect women? Mm -hmm. Why do the women stay in the relationship? And that last part is really important to me because, you know, if you understand that, then you wouldn't ask that question, why does she stay with him? Yeah. Know, which is such a, you know, sort of off-base question once you understand, you know, why it's, it's, it's like all about, it's like the complexity of emotions, right? And it's the complexity of how these bonds that are formed are both loving and hurtful. And um, in many ways, like all the relationships in Mind in the Gap are both loving and hurtful. And it's within that paradox that these people have to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah, and I, th I think that that's very beautifully put. I, th I think that there's obviously one of the most emotionally intense moments as a viewer, I would imagine also as the filmmaker, is the conversation that you have with your mother, which, and I'm projecting based on like what I can see in the kind of just planarized vision of the film, is you encountering your mom, who from your perspective didn't, protect you, right? Or somehow abandoned you while your um, stepfather was abusing you. And then you are also confronted by the story of her own abuse by your stepfather. So that there is this very painful, but like also quite captivating dynamic of two people who are effectively asking one another for some kind of like forgiveness and also for some kind of admission or like taking of some kind of responsibility so like can you if you can can you talk about like what negotiating that experience was like and what it felt like to do that on film i mean so my mom and i didn't really know each other too well growing up i mean she was a single mom and then she met my stepfather and then she was working all the time and i was just with him and after i left for chicago it was like we sort of lost touch mm. i didn't feel safe going to be around her because i meant being around my stepfather okay and then when she finally decided to divorce him after almost two decades of being with him she moved out to her own apartment and then all of a sudden i had this opportunity to spend time with her again in a place that felt safe mm. and that was while i was making the film that that happened you know we tried having i tried having conversations with her about you know the past and what it all meant and you know our relationship but it never lasted longer than 10 or 15 minutes because it was just so emotionally hard. Sure, it was yeah. just so messy. Um, and it always fell apart. And plus, like, my coping mechanism is black everything out. Block it all out. Don't think of it. So it's actually hard for me to access what happened. Mm. So much of me going to interview her, and all I did was just like, hey, can I interview you for this project? Sure, what's right. the date? So my going into it, I was like, well, I'm going to be able to sort of build this history that I've blocked out because it's, I, it's like hard to overcome this coping mechanism. And also, it would allow me to later go back and really look at what was said because I knew going into it, like, yeah, I'm probably going to block this conversation out too. Right. And I'll be, like, present in the moment and, like, you know, be able to to know what to say in the moment. But how am I going to make sense of it? I need to be able to objectively document this. Do you feel that you were able to get, like, did that help heal some kind of relationship between you and your mother by even having, albeit not ever maybe being able to like completely get through it, but like being able to have the beginnings of those conversations? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's like we're just finding it. I mean, we really didn't have a relationship. So it's like it was just finding out where we stood. 
Okay. Right. And then, you know, like I feel like I had to do work outside of making the film to accept it. I don't know if she's done that work. Yeah. But it, that conversation is more about like just broaching this thing that we, you know, the broaching where we stood. To kind of wrap up a little bit here, it struck me at the end of the film, I was I was trying to create like a kind of one line thing that was like, this movie is about, <laughs> right? And as you're laughing, because you know that that is actually impossible to do with <laughs> yeah. this film. But one of the things that I came up with was not a single thing, but that a lot of the film seems to be about an attempt, maybe never complete or um, satisfying, to, on the one hand, take responsibility for what has happened to you, right? To, to kind of own it. I mean, I, I think responsibility, I'm more thinking about um, like Zach's character, for example. Like, it's like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm here. I'm in, and he feels that very pressingly because it's like adulthood has kind of like exploded onto him, right? He has like a child. He's now got this girlfriend that is and isn't like, it, it's clear at some points that they're like dating other people and they don't really know how they feel about that. So there's a kind of taking responsibility. I mean, I think that's also going on with your mom, like trying to work through her own pain and then what is obviously grief, obvious grief that she feels about what happened to her sons. But then also a kind of attempt, definitely never complete, to kind of let go of those things, like to in some way process what has happened in the past and to recognize that trauma is cyclical and transgenerational and to try to stop that cycle from reproducing itself. Is that somewhat close <laughs> to what I think like this movie is about? Does that make sense to you? No, it totally makes sense to me. It all makes sense. It's interesting because I think a lot of us have, like I've certainly felt like I let go and like in going back to this film, it was like, well, no, I want to explore it more, you know? Okay. Like it wasn't, like it wasn't, haunting me or racking me until I started doing the film. <laughs> right, know? right, right. Yeah. Well, because you yeah. can keep it at bay, right? right? You're like living in a different place. You're taking yeah. on different projects. And ultimately, you know, it's trying to take often written off aspect and era and a theme of our lives and trying to give it the respect that it deserves. Like adolescent mm. emotions, like we yeah. write that off. And the things that happen in our adolescence, like getting your first job, talking about your father for the first time ever with somebody. Right. These things matter so much and they form who we are. Like we go into our 20s, get a job, like go off to school, you know, start a family. All of a sudden we're in our 30s. It's like, what happened? Like, who? Yeah. you know, and it's like, I think we should pay attention to this. You know, we should give the respect to adolescents in that time in our life. How did the subjects in your film respond? Have they seen the film? Oh, yeah. We showed everyone the film before. And we told them way beforehand, like years beforehand, that we were going to show them the film before it ever came out. Okay. And so Zach, he was crying at the end. It was the second time I've ever seen him cry. Okay. And he was relieved because he thought he was going to get portrayed worse. Which, <laughs> and you're laughing, but I think in reality, it's it's like that says a lot about, I think, how he feels about himself or how mm, he felt about himself. Yeah. And, you know... Nina, it was like in hindsight, I realized in watching this film, she relived her relationship with Zach, you know. Okay. And that both made her fall in love with him again because he's so charismatic. Sure. And also just feels such in pain that, you know, he like didn't turn out to be the guy that she thought. Right, right. And that was hard. And Kier, it was like every time he cried on screen, he cried in person. Every time he laughed on screen, he'd laugh in person. Oh, you know, wow. He was just like a reflection of his, he just, you know, everyone relived their, like no... It's rare for someone to get a chance to 
see their adolescence play out on screen in a pretty objective way. They all felt, and that you know, and it was like so. It was like reliving it because they had all just moved on. They were like all you know, sort of doing their own thing at that point. So what's next for you? I know, obviously, this movie has been like a great, like, do you, it's been a great success. Like, do you want to do similar things? Will you always be a documentary filmmaker, do you think? Is that kind of like your lane that you like playing in? Well, I mean, was, I felt like this is so naive when I said it when I was a teen, but I'm like sort of coming back around to this idea because it's kind of working. You know, I want to make <laughs> films to make a difference in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think my skill set is in, you know, this emotion. Like I just operate in such an emotional place and I like, I love showing that everyone's really vulnerable and like, I just want everyone to like get along and really like love one another. And that's so, but. <laughs> No, it's a good it's a good desire <laughs> yeah, to have. Right. I think yeah. that the world would be very different <laughs> right. if most yeah. of us had that desire. Yeah. Right. But so currently it, I've been developing a documentary for the past year and it's we've started filming a few months ago. It's about memory, both personal and communal memory and okay. how that's very hard to access when it's when you've experienced trauma mm-hmm. as it, as it pertains to young men who have experienced gun violence in Chicago. Oh, okay. And then I have a fiction film that I'm writing about how intimacy is formed and how difficult it is to actually access and how paradoxical it is in our modern day and age. And on that note, unfortunately, we're going to have to end. Um, we've been speaking with Bing Liu, director of Minding the Gap, opening in select theaters in New York and LA and also streaming on Hulu. Thanks so much, Bing. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.